This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hi, this is Sandra McCracken, and you're listening to The Steadfast Podcast. I began writing my Patient Kingdom album around 2017. I couldn't have known that the COVID pandemic would affect all of us so profoundly, and that patience would be a skill we would all be forced to learn. This episode touches on some of the most difficult moments of quarantine reality, as I talk to my dear friend, Andy Ashworth. Andy and her husband, Charlie, officially established Art House in Nashville in 2001. Art House was not only a recording studio for Charlie, a music producer, but it served as a place for artists to find rest while recording. Andy's role was to care for those who came through the Art House doors, as well as her own family who lived on the property. Since leaving Art House in 2015, Andy's role as a caregiver has changed a bit, and it has been tested during the COVID pandemic as she desperately misses her children and grandchildren. I've learned so much from Andy when it comes to patience and steadfastness. Andy's book, Real Love for Real Life, is a beautiful example of developing patience as we give care for those we love. Thanks for listening today, and enjoy my talk with Andy Ashworth. So, yes, I like that question. Am I an an introvert? Yes, I am an introvert. (laughs) But a very relational introvert. Yeah. So uh, I get my energy to be with people by not being with people 24 hours a day, (laughs) but I do need to be with people. Mm -hmm. And uh, so learning all that has been really like, I didn't, I didn't know even what that word meant until I was in my forties. Yeah. And had been living in this household that never had any privacy. Yeah. And we had people always, always there and, I would get to a point where I would just feel like I'm going to bust internally mm-hmm. if I don't get some privacy, but there isn't any insight. Mm-hmm. And I had gone to a counselor and was taking some personality tests. And that was the first time I ever knew about introvert, extrovert. It was just like, that's just the way I'm made. I just need some privacy. That's all. Yeah. But it was like a key t- to opening the universe of what it meant to do the life that I was being given, hmm. you know, to know how to take better care of myself inside of it. Yeah. People have, uh, it seems like people have used the terms introvert, extrovert more recently really, than they used to. Does it seem like, I mean, there's, there was know. the book a few years ago about like that most people are introverted mm. and that there's just this quiet leadership that's happening sometimes, but not not as visible on the face, right? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the house and the lifestyle. So you've lived kind of a unique story and just in terms of even that first layer of like, this is your home, but it's mm-hmm. also a place that a lot of people gather. Can you give us like, what would be, how would you frame that as you look back on what was the art house? What was your, what was the beginning there? The beginning was an idea that, uh, Chuck had, my husband had, and it was really, it was simple. It was to have a place to help develop a Christian mind 
for artists and to talk about vocation and uh, just to think about those things in terms of God's calling. And so we lived down the street at the time that these ideas and these impressions were coming to him. And so we lived down the street from this old, at that time it wasn't quite a century old, but an old white country church. And we had just moved to Nashville like the year before. And Chuck had come home from a tour in Europe and he started talking about this idea and he even had a name for it and it was called the Art House. He had a little logo drawn and he was trying to explain it to me. And I kind of just didn't really, really (laughs) understand fully what he was talking about. But one day we drove by with our family to go somewhere and we would always drive right by there because we literally lived in the neighborhood down the street. And he said, maybe that's the art house because there was a for sale sign up in front. Pretty quickly, within a couple of days, we had an appointment to go see the house and there was an older couple who were living there Sybil and Lester and Chuck and I just went by ourselves at first so they had they were the first people who turned the church into their home and they'd been living there for 13 years and they were older and they just couldn't really take care of it anymore so we walked in the door and Sybil was frying bacon and bacon was you know filling the house and they were southern and they brought us in and we stayed for three hours and we just heard their stories of their life in this place and they showed us around and Chuck and I got in the car and we both burst out crying and we didn't know why and it was one of those things where you've just had it's the power of place and the way it just speaks to you. So in some, sometimes you don't, you can't take it apart. You can't say why. But as we would later find out, it was so much about what our calling would be wrapped up in for the next, like, over two decades. So we, through a series of really kind of crazy pro- providential ways that the Lord gave us the money to put a down payment on that place, and we bought it. We didn't have any kind of money at that time, but we were given the money and we bought it. And and then we moved, so we started doing things there. We started doing large gatherings for the community and Bible study every week. And all these people started coming and it started filling up. But as soon as we got the place, I started having these ideas about what do I want it to be here? Like, what do I want the environment to be? And I knew that it was going to have to have some kind of food. <laughs> Even if it was just, you know, we bake cookies or we put lemonade out every time. Yeah. But there was something about people gathering around food and talking and making friendships. And then it would be also all the teaching and it would kind of all be a big stew of all that and it would be relationships and so that but then we moved our family in like three years later and that's when it, it ceased to be something that was a nonprofit that just kind of we went there and we did work <laughs> but when we moved in from that point on I could never tell you the elevator speech for the nonprofit. it was just home and it was about what God was calling us to do and me to do and but just the life that we lived there it was about life so was there a shift in the call so when that's really interesting I've never heard it that way but like Charlie drew like the logo Mm -hmm. and then you kind of had so there's a vision Mm -hmm. and then the call but did you in that initial part did you think that the residential part was coming 
Did you expect to live in, in so immersed in this car? Yeah, not so much. A little bit. Well, I have a place in my journal where I talk about our first time of going there. Mm -hmm. And I said, is it the home of the art house? Is it the home of the Ashworths? I don't know. Maybe both. And, you I know, love that. Yeah. So <laughs> we didn't really know, but we had a very just strong reaction to the place, like to the kitchen and all the bookshelves and the big room that we ended up having so many gatherings in and, mm. and it didn't look like anything like it ended up looking like after we renovated for years and years but it was it was still really strong and so it just kind of captured both of our imaginations i think in different ways and i just immediately well once we moved in i really that's when i really found my own taste mm. in reacting to that place which was you know had so much story in it already and i found that like i i loved 40s pottery and i loved vintage tablecloths and i wanted to fill that kitchen <laughs> with smells you basically food. started anthropology before, <laughs> before anyone yeah and this uh, is like a blend of yeah, all these things it was just this I want, I have this feeling that I want this to be mm. a place of comfort that's mm. kind of timeless. That was like what I felt like when I would go to my grandmother's mm, house. That. And so it was all of those things, chenille bedspreads, and just, <laughs> just, I found out that those are the things that I love. That's my taste. I was already a gardener, but there was all this space and I could mm. plant and plant and plant. And I just really, in so many ways, came to know who I was in that house mm. as I responded to living there and to the people who came and to the relational needs, mm. the need for, you know, actual food hunger, but also relational hunger. And, you know, you just learn your vocation as you as you go and it unfolds. And I think we, we respond to it as we go so it's a call and response. It's always mm -hmm. happening and it's, it's just continually unfolding. So for for somebody who may hear this story for the first time, I'm so struck by your sensitivity to God's leading in all this, you know, both of you and, and together and individually. What, what are ways to cultivate that? I, I know a lot of us, like a lot of people aren't as in touch with that. So they would, you know, a lot of us like wouldn't, know how to you know connect emotionally to the place when we mm -hmm. go see it for the first time so yeah. i guess i wonder like i think for you that's a gift that god gives and it's not necessarily a thing that's learned but it's given and in a sense that how do we how do we cultivate it on the places where we need it more you know like i don't know if that question makes mm -hmm. sense <laughs> so before before that time, I had done a, I had read a lot of Edith Schaefer, mm -hmm. which is somebody who people might not know as much anymore, but yeah, she and her husband Francis Schaefer were co-founders of Labrie in Switzerland, which now has branches all over the world. But they were all about they opened their home, people came, people asked questions, and they sat in their living room and they they just talked to people and they right. you know served food and um, <laughs> it was a well and, and it was just a strange thing that people would find their way there so by the time we were coming to the art house I already had this kind of foundation of 
I was drawn to that, but not like they did it. Like, mm-hmm. I did not want to be in a residential place where we had people living with us all the time. Right. That wasn't it. That wasn't it was, part of your dream? No, it wasn't. I mean, it did it turn out to be that way a lot. <laughs> but it wasn't a part of I was just drawn to the fact that the teaching part, the intellectual, the fact that there's, there, like, discussion and questions and the life of the mind is, and the life of the heart, it's all mm-hmm. valued, but it all goes hand in hand with it. It's physical. It's it's about being with one another. It's happening as we talk and eat together. And, you know, you, you create a place that really made, it was valuable to me. And I had already been doing this, but creating a place, just creating a home. I already did that for my family. And we had already done a lot of hospitality, just kind of normal ways that Somebody needs a place to stay. Musicians always need a place to stay. So we'd already had that in our life when we lived in Sacramento. More and more when we moved to Nashville. It wasn't something that came out of the blue. It was already happening. But then it it became very focused and very like, Mm. this is the work of my days now to do this and but you know it's kind of gradual it doesn't just like okay now I'm going to start this way of living and Mm -hmm. it wasn't like that it was like okay we need to move into this place now because it's too expensive to have another house and Mm -hmm. and also have this place and Chuck had a studio there by then (laughs) so it was more it was practical Mm -hmm. to move from our house and move to that house but I had fear about it. I had fear about always having people around and not having any privacy. Yeah. And how am I going to make a home for our family here as well as do all these other things? Mm-hmm. You know, because there are people here making records every day and, you know, we're going to do you all these know things. Who's and be yeah. And in the kitchen. So that, that was kind of, that was a gradual thing. And that's why it was, it was learned. Mm-hmm. But also there was, I think, Going back to the Edith Schaefer, there was a kind of a yieldedness because I had already mm-hmm. read some of her stories mm-hmm. about their life. And again, though I didn't want their life, I was more predisposed to be open to recognizing that mm-hmm. some parts of that might be in this house that we were, mm-hmm. you know. So um, I love that. I, I was able to hear Edith Schaefer speak when I was in St. Louis when I was a little girl and I remember she spoke about education and it was like she was in the chapel at Covenant Seminary Mm. and I was just like along with my mom and I was pretty captured by her too. I I think the Schaefer's gave such they gave some imagination for what this could look like and I was from a big family, but without those, like, kind of ministry applications or anything. But loved that and kind of loved seeing how that could come together. Even if I was, I guess their emphasis was a lot on philosophy and asking questions and studying particular topics. And Mm -hmm. there's part of that at the art house, too, that there's, like, study, but then there's this creative music side that, I mean, it was a sweet spot for me, I think, just seeing that come to life, you know years later in that something you said a few times as you were talking about kind of establishing a family so if you if you bullet point like what are the top few things like if somebody came here from another planet and wanted to start a family you know like what are the most important like elements of family and these could be Mm. you know primitive words or abstract words whatever but what are the kind of the primary colors of family 
to you? <laughs> Is that uh, a weird question? Oh, yeah. I'm like embarrassed um, to not know how to frame it. No, I wish I was better to... No, it's... Well, by now, you know, I've been... So I've gone from thinking about making family with four people uh-huh. to right. understanding now that family life goes... It just goes on and on and on because <laughs> once, you know, kids are out of the house and there's a whole nother right. bunch of family life that happens from that. You know, your little original mm-hmm. bunch of people and then and then you multiply and now there's grandkids and um I would just say that the thing that that I can say that over all of that you can you can put this however you want to, but time at the table has has been just super essential and that was from the time and I didn't know that in the very beginning of our life together. This was something that came about. It was really something I understood a lot more after we began to follow Jesus in 1982. Mm-hmm. And it really was a lot also to do with reading Edith Schaefer and you know, the way she talked about the art of family and just the mm-hmm. artfulness in ordinary daily life and how that might be. For, so for me, it turned out that I really cared about food and I cared about the kitchen, but I cared about the relationships that happened around that too. And so I would go to a lot of trouble to make sure that we were together at the table. And I think, I think that I still think that's really essential. It's essential to me even now with a big, you know, bigger extended family, which is something that's been, it's gone right now because of COVID, but it's one of the, things I really look forward to getting back. Rituals of belonging is something that I kind of have named over the years that is things things that you do in families that say, this is who we are, this is what we do. That can be all, it can be anything. It's really, it's more something that's kind of repetitive or something that can be as simple as, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but for a long time when Sam, our son, was a single dad and he and the kids would spend the night a lot. And so Bridget, my oldest granddaughter, who's now 17, but when she was just a little a little girl and, you know, they would spend the night a lot, all of, the, all of them because they were, they were lonely on the weekends. And so, um, but she would always help me make the coffee. And so I'd put her, sit her up on the counter and we'd put the beans in the coffee grinder, <laughs> uh-huh. and we'd count to 10, and I'd have her count uh-huh. to 10, and then we would smell. We'd go, mm, that smells good, mm, you know, and she'd smell like, yes, that smells good. And then we'd put it together and have her push the button. And it was just this little thing, but we did it every single time that we woke up in the morning in the same house. Just last week, we had a conversation where she said, every time I smell coffee, I remember that, you know, but it's it's just like it can be the smallest thing, but it's the things that, that are that involve our senses or mm-hmm. rituals of belonging. Mm-hmm. I love that. <clears throat> so memory making, I think about the stage that my kids are in now and just like the oldest is 13 and the youngest, my Sam, is he's just like over a year. And sometimes you don't know that that's all going on because there's so much going on. Right. Yes. So, you yeah. so 
What what were the ways? I mean, did you keep schedules? Did you uh, did it happen naturally as far as making those, those memories and being intentional about those well, things? Well, those are those are things that I I really once I kind of got going on that idea of that being a part of family making. It wasn't something we Certainly. did all the time, but it was. We were in. <laughs> we had some times of being intentional about it. Like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I've told you before that. We used to write Valentine's letters to each other. This is when the kids were still home. And that started when the t- Sam couldn't even read yet. Mm-hmm. And somebody else, he had to dictate his letter to somebody else. <laughs> but the first time we did it, it was really, I just thought, I, I don't know, it's just an idea that came to me. And we were living in Sacramento and we had a house we rented. The house was. Every single room had different wallpaper. It was pretty awful, but I, I made a meal and I had <laughs> given everybody this task of writing the love letter to everybody mm-hmm. else in the family. And so then, but I and I said, you, every, we all need to dress up. So I made the, I made something special. We all put whatever we had on in those days that was kind of dressing up and. We ate and then we read our letters afterwards. And then we did that for the next 10 years. So that was, you know, Mm -hmm. by the time we did our last time of doing that, Molly was going away to college. And it wasn't like everybody every year would go, oh, yay, we get to do that again. It was more (laughs) like me saying, we're going to do this again. And that's right. So, yeah. And so as as we all, you know, are coming along and growing up together, because I really see us as we started out young and we all grew up together. It was just something I it was very intentional and it was just an idea that came. And I'm really, really glad we did it. And now I have most of these letters oh. in a scrapbook. And they're just, they're precious. They're really precious. So things like that are intentional. Other things are like, it's the last day of school, let's make a cake and celebrate the last day of school. And a little more free form. Go on, a, you know, whatever. It just depends on yeah. the, the family and yeah. the people in it and what they like. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a using your imagination and creativity mm-hmm. to, to love and work time yeah and if I think about it there really are opportunities like every day for those things and and it's different depending on the people involved and mm-hmm. what their needs are you're absolutely right we'll be right back for more of a conversation with Andy in a moment thanks for listening do you keep a journal I know the answer to this, but I'm asking. Tell us yes. about tell us about that. I keep a journal. You've been doing this for a while. Yeah, <laughs> I started keeping a journal in 1984. I had done a little bit. Well, I, we had a high school teacher who I always think about. I, I really learned to keep a journal because of her, because she assigned mm-hmm. us. You That's know. the same for me. I had a high school mm-hmm. teacher that gave me. I mean, I probably journaled some before that, but gave me a journal, and yeah, I felt like a Okay, I'm, I guess I'll do this. <laughs> it was the greatest gift. It's the only English class that I remember. <laughs> but I had, I, I mean, when I was a little girl, I had one of those pink plastic diaries that has a little lock and key mm-hmm. and a little bit of chicken scratch in that. 
you know, I love the Beatles, I love Paul McCartney, <laughs> spying on my older sisters kind of things. But right. then I, she assigned us journal keeping. Mm -hmm. And that, and then I did that a little bit in my early marriage, but that was more just like, I'm really angry, so I'm going to write everything out in this notebook. <laughs> Some angst on paper. Yeah. And then uh, in 1984, my mom died of cancer, and I came home from having help take care of her uh, bedside as she died at home. My sister and I took care of her. And, you know, I came home from that and Chuck was in the studio making his first studio album. And so he went back to that and I was home and I had little children and I just had this, I needed to get something out on paper. So that was really the beginning of it, was beginning mm -hmm. to write down this pain. And Lucy Shaw talks about it because she's a big journal keeper, you know, mm -hmm. the poet mm -hmm. Lucy Shaw, who's just an amazing writer of mm -hmm. many, many years, and uh, about taking the thorns out of your flesh. And, and it was like that. Wow, that's a great image. But I also just started writing down ordinary days. And my grandmother had done that and I had her, some of her diaries. Mm -hmm. uh, my sisters and I had split them up after she died. And they were literally just, it was just the days. Like if she sewed all day, she might just say sewed. But that would, <laughs> you know, that would be, cause she was yeah. a seamstress and she had clients. And so work. that could take, a, you know, that could take up a lot of the day if she didn't have time to write down a lot of other things. So I just kind of started doing that. And it was a way of, kind of taking my life with young children and saying all of these things happened and I did all these things or we did all these things and it could be everything from clean the house today and made this for dinner and pick Molly up from kindergarten and you know it could be all of that to who people that were in our life the things that Chuck was and just started to make this record of life. Mm. So now I, I'm on my 55th journal <laughs> and just, and it just grew to be, you mm. know, so those journals are a history of my life and my work and my family's life and everybody who came through our home at the art house and everything we did there. and. It's a history of becoming a writer. I mean, it was mm. part of becoming a writer. It's a history of, you know, first times I ever went to speak anywhere. I mean, it's just mm. everything about life is in there and and right now. And so it's, it's a, mm. there's just a ton. I would not remember. I would just kind of see things in a blur, I think, yeah. if I didn't have it all written down. <laughs> and it's really helped yeah. me to value ordinary daily life mm -hmm. and the, all the bits and pieces that it takes to, to live a day, to live a week, you know, and uh, I think you can really, I like to, sometimes I say to people, if you, if you want to see what your life is about, write it down mm -hmm. and then you'll see the longer story of your vocation, mm -hmm. the threads that weave through and all the details and yeah, yeah. I find a lot of gratitude, I think, that way. And, yeah. and even during COVID, it's helped a lot just to say, hey, there really was a difference between this day and that yeah, day, and here, here's true. all the difference. 
Pick Here's the details just to see mm-hmm. it, see it back. And yeah. I think I can, I, I'm encouraged hearing that. I can relate to that. When I think about looking back over journals, they help me, writing helps me to move my emotion aside and get to like mm. the, you know, like the tangible stuff that's actually going on. Like you're mm-hmm. saying, like just to sort of document what what's happening um and inevitably i see like all these good gifts that are right there but sometimes i'm sort of stuck behind how i'm feeling about it yeah (laughs) or saying i don't even know what that is until i start writing yeah exactly we're well we process through writing yeah you do and i do (laughs) and yeah uh, yeah so now i for for quite a quite a long time i've been like i'll just like i have a date with myself on saturday mornings Mm -hmm. And that's largely when I sit and I sit with my calendar that's open on my desk Mm. and I just kind of start pulling from that, like this happened this week and then it goes from there. But I find that there's something like it's such a comfort to me to think of, oh, I get to sit with my cup of coffee and open Mm -hmm. that book, that empty book with those pages that I like with no lines yeah. the book you know the the empty book just the size that I like and, yeah. and when my pen touches that page my brain you know it's going to go from brain to hand to pen to page mm-hmm. and there's something really different about that than writing in a computer definitely can't a lot of people do a lot of stuff on their phones I can't yeah. do that but yeah. It's just very visceral. It's very, <laughs> it brings something out of me that helps me process and think. But so I'm the writer in me, the archivist in me, they're all together in that. <laughs> when I met Wendell Berry uh, years ago, he said he has yellow, like kind of legal page yeah. notebooks. Yeah. Like and these. he writes them just like that. And, mm-hmm. and he has his little writing spot. And he, but he, he talked about that very same thing. He said, it gives me great pleasure to just see my words yeah. on the page. And yeah. there's something just naturally responsive. But you know, some some exchange that's happening in that that I forget to do that. And in, in, in when I think about being when I think about work as a writer, mm-hmm. I, I think about a computer. But then yeah. when I think about journaling or writing a letter I want I want that to be by hand, and if mm-hmm. I join those two, I think it could ro- <laughs> it would probably <laughs> yield a good good return. So it's yeah. A, did your um, your so you mentioned this is this would be an interesting question for anybody that's writing or thinking about writing or that I've heard. I mean, you've encouraged me so much just in terms of you know the writer is one who writes. So. Uh, in your journaling process, you at some point kind of awakened into this understanding of yourself as a writer or had mm-hmm. a desire to write. And yeah. so as a writer, your mm-hmm. your book on hospitality, on life, on a lot of these things you're sharing, did you have the thought about the, that particular book beforehand or how did that all come about? Mm-hmm. How did you fall into that role? Yeah, well, I, I was writing a lot by then, but just very personally, so journals, letters like I just loved to write it was really important to me and reading so mm-hmm. writing and re- reading always a part of my life and growing more to be mm-hmm. a part of my life the older I became I was just in this season where we lived in the art house and Molly was gone but Sam was still there and 
I just started having these ideas about at the time I was working really full time, just office stuff related to our life, to mm-hmm. the music business and accounting and numbers and just things that are not who I am, but it needed to be done. So I was <laughs> doing it. And the more and more, you know, Chuck was starting record company and there was just, there was a lot to do in that world, but it wasn't who I was. And so I was just getting more and more frustrated. Like, I'm spending all my days doing this. And the more I did it, the more I realized, I hate this. (laughs) I have to, you know, I'm doing it because it's part of our family business. And kind Mm -hmm. of coinciding with that, I started having these ideas about, I need to go to the bookstore, which at that time was Dave's Kid. I need to go to Dave's Kid, and I need to find a book that. that talks about all these other parts of life that are really the thing that fills my life the most. And it was about mm. caring for caring for people's life, caring for place. It was about it was about home. It was about ho- hospitality in the broadest sense of what that was. But it was about thinking about work and calling mm. in that arena of life. And I just couldn't find the mm. book that I needed. So I think I just started thinking of it so but uh it came to a head when uh finally we were at the place where we just said we had gone to counseling and the counselor helped us see you should not be doing this work for the you know Mm. for the music business part of your life that you're doing (laughs) and i had i had done some work about trying to understand who am i on my own if i didn't wasn't in this music business family and I wasn't married mm-hmm. to a music business husband who because we got married so young I just didn't really have time to know myself very well yeah and one of the things that I came to trust was that I am a writer this is what I have done <laughs> for a long time I just have not tried to do it for anybody else <laughs> so I just I just began to trust uh, I want to chase down these questions and I want to research and I want to write and I don't know what I'm doing, but I just want to follow it. Mm-hmm. And so that's really where it came from is trusting. Maybe you have something inside of you mm-hmm. that you can trust that the Lord is leading you to to do something with and you don't have to know what it is. It could be you're just writing yeah. something that you'll one day give to your children or who knows what, but it was, it was just the faith to, you know what, I can get all the bookkeeping stuff out of my office and give it to somebody else (laughs) who's qualified. And I can turn this office into a room that would be, I would love to come to every Mm -hmm. day and just sit down on my computer and start typing sentences and paragraphs. And so it wasn't like I had at all a vision for what it was going to be. Or even that it was a book, I didn't dream that big. It was more <laughs> taking a little step at a time and just saying, well, I'll just chase down this question today or mm. write you know, a few sentences and see where it comes and read through my journals and I love that all phrase, that. the phrase, I couldn't find the book that I needed. Yeah. Because I think that's like, that maybe is the center of calling. Like if you think about, you know, was it Tim Keller? I don't know who the quote was. It's basically saying your your need, the world's need, and your yeah. gift. It's yes. like something in that space of mm-hmm. there's a little space that you know we each have that we uniquely 
contribute to, yeah. right? And for you, it was chasing down the things that you love and the things that mm-hmm. really are life-giving to you yeah. and putting aside the things that weren't, that were crowding that space. Um, and was that hard? Like when you started writing in earnest at that point mm-hmm. for, toward a particular subject or toward yeah. something that maybe would go out beyond mm-hmm. just your own personal experiences yeah. and has gone out, was it... What was there tension between that and holding the family rhythms or keeping up with all that? Was did it feel like those two things were a tug of war? It felt like, um, yeah, and it's and it's always been a tug of war. I mean, not so much so yeah. much now is the first time it's really not. There's a lot of space for mm. writing now, but the entire time we lived in the art house, I constantly put I would start something and then I'd have to put it on hold because yeah. I mean as, when I started writing that book all of a sudden without really knowing we were going to do it we brought Sam home we started homeschooling for oh, yeah. the last three years of high school yeah and that was really I just had to put the beginning of this book kind mm-hmm. of on hold and and then there were things, I mean, Molly and Mark got married, there was a wedding. It's just always a big thing, you know, and even later in life, it was family things, but it was maybe it was a large hospitality event that, you know, just takes weeks mm-hmm. to prepare for and mm-hmm. to clean up after. And, or it was, there was a time right before we moved from the art house, the last few years, we helped take care of Chuck's mom in the last you know, when she was beginning mm-hmm. to get sick and need care. So there, there are things always, I think, attention in family life where you're, you're like, you're trying so hard to hold on mm-hmm. to the other parts of who you are. And in this case, it was like this particular book, it just wouldn't let go. That was the thing. So even we, at one point during that time of writing, not writing, writing, not writing, we moved to St. Louis and went to seminary for a semester. And I stopped writing so that I could begin to go to school. But I came home from that and really that's when I started writing the actual book. Mm So it was, it actually fed back into... Yeah, so it was always, yeah, but it was always kind of, it's always, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Mm-hmm. I began to speak just a tiny bit, and when I, when I did speaking, it was from the book that was forming. So mm-hmm. it's all feeding each other. Mm-hmm. And then I'm learning more about the topic, the more mm-hmm. I live, so... <laughs> This year has been kind of a crazy year, disruptive for everybody and yeah. um, certainly disruptive for you all and just this, the, I think when we have like forced slowness, it's more of a, you know, like if it's, if we just choose a vacation, that's one thing and that's hard enough to slow down, <laughs> you know, it typically takes like a few days before you relax and then it's time to go home, you know, Yeah. <laughs> but then when we have this prolonged like forced slowness or slowness because of illness or because of you know covid and and financial or job things i just think it's kind of a perfect time to have these conversations about what matters about gathering around the table even if we can't do that yet you know but it brings the things that matter up to the surface mm-hmm. that it normally kind of get pushed down under the noise of everything else yeah. that's, that seems so urgent, you know? Yeah. And True. what has this year been like for you? The, the, the theme 
that's been coming up for me a lot is just this idea of patience. Just like, what is it? This year has required patience. So I don't know. I'm just curious, like, how does that, have you experienced what are the places of patience for you this year? Or what are the lessons of patience, maybe? What are the things you're kind of harvesting or that God's doing? Well, I'll tell you the one thing that I miss the most of anything, and that is, and I think this, you'll hear a lot of grandparents say this, but hugging my children and my grandchildren (laughs) yeah when this thing is really over (laughs) and done with yeah we are never going to stop hugging (laughs) but that loss of physical Mm. physical expression Mm -hmm. that just we it's such a part of our lives we don't yeah. I mean, even so just us true. friends, you and I would normally, I we would give a giant hug when we see each other and when we leave. And, but that part of like waiting and waiting and learning a different way to be mm-hmm. and being, I think, great. Well, definitely if I, I can think that all the way through to, yeah, but we can see each other yeah. outside or at a distance or with a mask on mm-hmm. or whatever, but we cannot full on hug mm-hmm. and like for instance one of my grandsons is really affectionate physically affectionate and i feel like we've lost a lot of communication without Hmm. having that so that is one thing that i feel like we've had i i've had to learn patience in just like waiting for Mm -hmm. that and knowing that it will come again Mm -hmm. and maybe it seems like a small thing but as time goes on it's kind of a big yeah it is i what are the things that have kind of the high points of the disruption (laughs) if that's not a good way to say that well okay um so my our entire life together check in my entire life together we've been married this year 45 years and we just there's a lot of unpredictability Mm -hmm. so I would imagine. Just unpredictability of music business, of Mm. hospitality, of personality, of so many things. And now we do have, he has a chronic illness, so there's an unpredictability within that. But the rhythms that I've always longed for, when we lived in the art house, oh, I used to long for rhythms and routines that I could count on and we just but in but I always needed to be able to shift and move with the day and who might show up at the door you know so I had to really learn to shift a lot and now I just realized a couple weeks ago you know what the rhythms you've always longed for here they are and and it's not like every day is the same or anything (laughs) like that it's just that Hmm. it's kind of number one we have a different kind of privacy because we live Mm. in a different house yeah Yeah. And it's a different season of our lives, and we really needed that. But there's a rhythm that has come with COVID that is, you just have limitations, and everybody's having them. But inside of that, there's still a lot to do. So it's not like there's not a ton right. to do to keep life going or do yeah. the projects or, or work or any of that. But the rhythms of my daily rhythms are kind of... I have them now and I appreciate that. So I know that I'm going to get up in the morning. <laughs> I'm usually going to go to my office. Yeah. 
And I'm usually going to sit with the scriptures for a while, and then I'm going to move in usually into writing, and mm-hmm. I write. So that's one good thing. You know, I've talked about I've shared with you, but I have a Zoom call regularly now with my oldest friends in the world. And these are women who I grew up with in California, in our little hometown of Yuba City in Northern California. <laughs> and we have known each other since one of them was my kind of neighbor around the corner from second grade and then another one came along in fourth grade another one came along in seventh grade and since that time we were just a foursome who did everything together and spent the night together all the time and you know we were just very very close so after we grew up and especially after we moved to Nashville the regularity of being able to see them was very hit and miss and it would depend upon us going to California and calling everybody and saying, let's have dinner, we're coming to town. <laughs> but at the beginning of COVID, one of them reached out and said, hey, let's let's check in with each other. And she's a teacher at a college, so she had a Zoom account and she set it up. And from that first day, and I think that was April, we've been keeping a date. At first, it was every couple of weeks and now it's about once a month, but I don't think we'll ever stop doing that now. <laughs> And before that, you know, now we're we're all like, I'm about to sign up for Medicare. I'm <laughs> going to be 65 this year. And I think that's, that's an amazing thing to have relationships with the people that you loved as a child and that you love and as, as an adult. And you get to have all that history plus know each other now. And it's really, I just prize it. It's, it's mm-hmm. one of the best things to come out of COVID. <laughs> Because I just can't imagine we'll ever stop it now. Like the distance won't keep us apart. Yeah. It's funny how it does separate us and then it brings us together in some surprising, surprising ways. Yeah. I love hearing that. Well, we have, um, oh my gosh, this has been so rich. I just, I feel like I, like always, I feel like I just like (laughs) took in a, a feast of just, care and thoughtfulness and you're so articulate thank you for just giving yourself to this time thank you sandra steadfast is created by sandra mccracken our producer leslie eiler thompson and editor john fletcher in partnership with christianity today i'm sandra mccracken thank you for listening This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.